My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Ladies and gentlemen, what is up? Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and on today's episode, we have William Ramsey, author and researcher. We got into a lot of cool stuff. We talked about Aleister Crowley. We talked about the smiley face killers. We talked about cults, and we talked about how he got started back when he was working in Washington, D.C., noticing all the symbolism and folks who have heard my recent appearance on the generation Z podcast might know that the DC area is somewhat significant to the past couple years in my life and all the events that have unfolded but on a different note if you like William Ramsey's work I encourage you to check out his podcast William Ramsey investigates and go to the website William Ramsey slash store check out his five books he's got the global death cult abomination where he talks about the West Memphis three children of the beast and prophet of evil where he talks about Alistair Crowley and finally he's got a book about the smiley face killers so folks if you like his work go show him some love and if you like my style you like this podcast it's value for value baby go over to the patreon patreon.com slash mftic and get exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else even interviews that haven't been released yet or maybe even never will get released who knows either way it's up to you you gotta check that shit out for yourself I'm glad you're here with us in the now. Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Fuck those black pill cool guys out there, folks. We're bringing down the light. We're bringing in the rainbow. We're bringing in the love. Peace. I didn't understand any of the symbolism there. So you'd see these two sphinxes and, uh, you just kind of look at it and all oh, like clearly somebody's put millions and millions of dollars into that. And why is it there? And you'd see like the house of Cincinnati, you'd see all these secret society buildings in Cincinnati and the, I think the Cincinnati secret society at Cincinnati was an old Roman figure who came to the aid of Rome. So it was adopted and I think at Washington was part of the society of Cincinnati. But this was also something that the public really doesn't see. 
it's evangelical, the rapture's coming, which is garbage theology. It goes back actually to right after, right at the very inception of the religion where these problems have been in the church from the beginning, where people are getting their ears tickled by teachers who are really in it for the money or have other aims, where there's heretics, where there's infiltrators. Look at how many of these cults have kind of a space opera thing. I guess Ranieri had it, Hubbard definitely has it, the Mormons have it. There's all kinds. I mean, so there was one called the Solar Temple. You can look at like the Aztec Empire, Egypt, who Moses contested with, right? They had these two priests, Yanis and Yambrus, who were basically court magicians. So you almost can see this almost biblical contest between Moses and God as Moses as a representation of God in the same tradition of the Old New Testament. And then this kind of paganistic Egyptian civilization with its overarching potentate, right, the Pharaoh and his little quirks, magicians. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm here with William Ramsey. William is someone who I've been working with briefly, and, and I'm happy to get to know you today. William, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Mark. Great to uh, be with you on video. We've talked all the phone many times, so um, it's uh, great to be here. Right on. Yeah. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and joining us on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Maybe we'll ask you this question right off the bat. Does your family think you're crazy, William? They used to. Absolutely. Now they just think I'm more eccentric. So I've gone from kid crazy to eccentric, but yes, definitely. So originally so thought I was crazy. They've grown to be more accepting. I think so. I think they kind of realized that maybe they were kind of in the American fish corporate media fishbowl. Yeah. And so they're more accepting, but I would say they kind of like to get their information from the TV, but I get my, the information I get to TV is what people want me to believe, which isn't really always the truth. Well, actually it's rarely it's truth as far as kind of factual information goes. You're being programmed. Yeah. Uh, I don't think yeah. they get it. I don't think, I think they, some of them get it, but some were like, oh, yeah, Fox News is good. Fox News background, but CNN used to be reliable, but yeah, I got off of that, that trade quarter century ago, a long time ago. So kind of tried to get information from other sources, the internet, I was kind of one of the adapted getting information from the internet. Where did this uh, all begin for you? I have a similar story with my family. I will say they tend to believe everything they see from the television programming. And yeah, I've made the same choice to avoid that media altogether. But when did this dawn on you? And maybe even further, when did you start to look at the world in this way? I mean, it's a great question because I thought about it a lot. I went through the school system college system, legal system, kind of believing kind of in a very kind of passive way. You just let them throw information at you and this is kind of your world. So that was what was kind of like what was accepted as a successful path. And when I got up there, kind of ascended that, I realized that I was up in the wrong build and that it really wasn't true. And it was kind of a plateau in a way where I thought I had reached a mountaintop. 
So I had a lot more to learn, definitely. And I realized that even the school system is corrupt, in my opinion, and really kind of Pavlovian and it'll politicized. And so there's a lot of parameter. I mean, it's kind of like the Overton window is your school system. So you just kind of get very standardized ideas. So I would say that that was it. So I went to Washington, D.C. in 1995. And being there also changed kind of, I saw a lot of stuff inside of Washington that made me think, I mean, I was really a provincial, I, I, I very provincial ideas. When I got to DC, I was like, this is real different than what you see on TV. A lot of corruption, a lot of talk about foreign bank accounts. A lot of people end up dead there on very unusual circumstances. And while I was a law student, I get charged for a guy who worked on, who had a client who was kind of tangentially involved in Vince Foster case, which, uh, so a lot of people said he went out to some park for Orsi park and killed himself. But I think the real story of that is that he went, he was killed and dealt at that park. And he was a very important person. I think he was the legal counsel for the white house. So it really something it really showed kind of how the media, it's really kind of a cartel. Uh, people will just spout whatever the story is supposed to be, whatever the political story is. So that really changed my eyes. It showed me a lot about how a national security state worked because it was not popular to have that opinion in DC at that time. And so that really was kind of really the start. So then I kind of had to rethink everything, kind of what is really true and what kind of lies are being promoted. Long-term lies, like long-term historical lies, like about JFK or the past. And so that was kind of a, kind of a brutal, I went on through a pretty brutal reevaluation of everything I thought I knew. And a lot of what I thought I knew strong, but this kind of like Napoleon said, history is bunk. So there was a lot of fake history that I kind of had to get away with, but it was kind of like cleansing the doors of perception for me because it allowed me to try to see things without kind of a political spin or cultural spin and try to really assess it as myself in a way. So when I came out the other side, I think I was much clear of clear in my thinking. So that was kind of a, uh, kind of a thing where I had to go through that in my twenties. So then that's really kind of like, was the, the foundation of everything where I was like, just spending time screaming at the TV and like, you're obviously lying. This is baloney. I was against the Iraq war. I initially thought 9-11 was done by terrorists, but about two or three years later, I was like, this doesn't make sense. This, none of this stuff is real. So that set me down another kind of path of research. And really kind of, I didn't know anything about the occult. I didn't know anything about secret societies. Very, you know, very topical kind of understanding. And kind of during the research of just kind of following, watching documentaries, being on the internet, just started aggregating information. And that's really what led to my first book, which is Prophet of Yale's Rule, Alistair Crowley, and Unlevel Your Daughter, which a lot of people would not put those three things together all in kind of one package which I tried to do in my first book. And I really just printed that book out. I really wasn't a publisher. I didn't really, I actually looked around at some publishing. I thought it was really a Christian book when I put it out. And so I asked some Christian publishers and man, they were there are, you would think I've had a different understanding about them, but they would just, they're just as uh, mercenary and bottom dollar line. Like I had somebody offered me like five cents of, uh, net after the book was published. And I was just like, that's the deal for this. So anyway, I decided to self-publish. 
because, and then I could tell my story. Nobody could edit anything. So it was kind of like, you get everything there. It was kind of like making a single malt scotch or single barrel wine. You just kind of, I put it out. I literally, I was printing it out. So I was selling a lot, promoting the book, the Christian publisher, because I thought, saw it as a very kind of within the context of good and evil. And, uh, so vital. And once you kind of cruelly is he was an antichrist type figure. Then you kind of have to see these events, new world order, at least hopefully through biblical prism. At least that's what I did. So that was really my first book. And all my other books were really kind of about the occult. And I, and I think that was like my learning experience, additional that there is some kind of thing beyond common understanding that people do make decisions upon like Crowley. And so that led to abomination, double worship, and deception, the West Memphis three warriors, children of the beast, Alistair Crowley, shadow of humanity. And then my most recent book, which is uh, global death cult, order of nine angles, I don't off and, and the slaughter of the innocents. And they're all really kind of trying to shine light and expose these kind of ideas that are often occulted. Then I made five documentaries. Those are all a Vimeo and I did a couple documentaries on something called the Smiley Face Killers, which is this phenomenon of, of young men trying to, young men who disappear at night at bars and later found water. Oftentimes, strange circumstances where it's not explicable, places that have been previously searched under odd circumstances. So that's kind of like a whole other set of my research that I was doing. A lot of that research was on Facebook before I destroyed my Facebook page gladly and Twitter. So. But so I've just, I really kind of tried to kind of put on my thinking cap and look at all of these things. And really, actually, there are very many of them have a very footnotes, like Children of the Beast has 800 footnotes. So you can see that I did a lot of research on it. And hopefully people can just build off that as well. If they were doing the same with Prophet Evil, which is essentially a biography of Crowley. It's not as much about it. It's really about taking, taking a look at Crowley. In my opinion, kind of, a, I wasn't an occultist, so I wasn't looking at Crowley as an admirable figure like some of these other biographies that are out there. And I looked at all the original texts. I went into library specialty reading rooms all over the country, looked at original documents that he wrote. That was really interesting. So original copies, magic and theory of practice, some of these other things, letters between them, people like JFC4. So I really tried to, to burrow into Crowley and see what his real ideas were and what he had tried, really tried to do. And I don't think politically he was very successful, but I do think that he left, he's really a scholar of the occult too. He left something like a foundation for other cultists to work on. And maybe that was probably his primary, his greatest achievement, which is a different, different concept, really what, what success is for some people. But yeah, so that's, that's really the beginning long and short. It kind of ended up with kind of this kind of corpus of work when I first started in 2010, a lot of my original interviews are on Christian radio. So you can see some, some more, but you can see kind of all the original stuff in 2010. Yeah. So people, sorry. No, it's all right now. And thank you for sharing Uh, now in hindsight, looking back to those days, maybe even before the Vince Foster case kind of shook you into looking at things from a different perspective or through a different lens. Were there anything that, were there any symbols that stood out to you? I mean, Washington DC now, obviously you see how symbolic it is and all the different nooks and crannies. I myself have only been there once and it was last year when it was 
basically deserted in June. Nobody was there because of the whole pandemic. But, but yeah, I'm curious to know like how the occult sort of symbolism came into the fray. Was it purely from the, the Christian perspective that you were curious of understanding this? differently or deep, more deeply, because most Christians, like you said, they don't even want to publish this type of material, even though it would be a great benefit in, in the sense of understanding and having more clarification in God and knowing that what the Bible talks about in a lot of cases has kind of become true. I mean, Crowley himself, like you said, he called himself the child of the new aeon, and, and you can interpret that certainly as Antichrist. I mean, Horus and, and Jesus have so many different similar similarities, and I mean, I know just as well as you do how dark uh, Crowley gets. I mean, one of the books that I came across in my slapdash attempt at researching him before Sam's opportunity to have me on his show really just sick book that he wrote called Snowdrops. I don't know if you came across it. Yeah, it was uh, Snowdrops. It was from Snowdrops from the Curate's Garden is the title. Mm. I think it, it's the Baj Watari. He adopted some some Arabic phrase. But yeah, I'm familiar with Snowdrops. It's basically very metaphoric, very sexually metaphoric, I guess right. is what he said. Yeah, and I mean, it just, it was a shocking thing to me because at first, like you kind of alluded to, and we'll get back to the, I know I'm asking like three questions at once here, but so many different authors have their perspective that they've shared on Crowley. Tobias Churton was one for me where I was like, well, I think this guy isn't really seeing the whole picture here. And there are others. He might be occulting the picture for you. Right, right. And that's, that's a suspicion I've had as well, which was what motivated me to discuss Crowley on Tinfall Hat. And, and yeah, it was really just disturbing to get that confirmation through his book, Snowdrops, because you see rumors and you, you hear hyperbole, but it's hard to tell the difference between the true facts and like somebody maybe misinterpreting something that the occultists will go and say, well, that's just a metaphor, right? And, and so, that's so a very child sacrifices a metaphor. That's the, yeah, that's one of the go to. It seems outlandish, like to even put that in there as any sort of metaphor. But then you go back and you look at the history for these types of sacrifices and you realize that, you know, this is a very real thing. So now that we're on the same page, let me reverse and, and ask you my, my question again. What do you think Crowley's influences were to do this and again the symbolism that kind of came before this when before you even really got into Crowley like what what woke you up to the cult side of all of this well that's a great question I mean very naive I was naive I wasn't didn't come from like a neither of my parents have a college degree so I didn't come from kind of an edu like uh elitist for the aristocratic family or anything like that so I didn't have that kind of familial we didn't discuss anything like that. And when I was in DC, you would obviously see the huge obelisk, right? You see that all the time, but there'd be moments I would be in the Capitol building, looking up at the apotheosis of George Washington. So you'd see that you would also see the house of the temple, which I uh, highly recommend all Americans take a look at because it's a huge, like ziggurat right in the middle of DC. And I didn't understand any of the symbolism there. So you'd see these two sphinxes and, uh, you just kind of look at it and all oh, like clearly somebody's put millions and millions of dollars into that. And why is it there? And you'd see like the house of Cincinnati, you'd see all these secret society buildings in Cincinnati and the, I think the Cincinnati secret society, which I can't remember offhand the full name, but that was a fairly benign 
one, Cincinnatus was an old Roman figure who came to the aid of Rome. And so he was adopted and I think at Washington was part of the society of Cincinnatus. But this was also something that the public really doesn't see, but you could just see that the ornamenture ornateness or Rococo quality of this building. Somebody's putting a lot of love and effort into just like the house of the temple. So you kind of would walk by these things and go, what is going on? You see the reflecting pool, just all the stuff. So, and so I didn't have that deeper Masonic kind of understanding. So, so that would really be like my background. So you would see these new numerology and numbers and six, six, six. And I didn't really know all that, but then, I mean, that's kind of like your first inquiry, but then like, I think Crowley was really kind of an elitist and an aristocrat and was trying to create a religion for his class as far as a person in class colleges England. So I think that that comes himself the priest to the princes. So I think that a lot of his ideas really were just distributed through the elite, not so much, although it's kind of become more egalitarian, I think in its, in its contact with more people after internet and it's like, a, I think originally he really was an elitist in creating a religion for elite. Like he wasn't trying to be popular or popularized. And he's even wrote about that, like why waste time with the muck of a mire, find a diamond, polish it. So you write things like that. And I think that that his writings do reflect his actions and what he was trying to do. So I think that that's really from his beginning, a rich kid went to the best schools. I think that was, and that was really kind of the, the culture that he was able to class that he said, what did he really thought of himself? So I think that then you kind of see somebody who's aggregating all that religion into his ideas of Thelema and to give himself credibility or something that really happened to him in 1904 was the book of Lula. And that really kind of placed him into a different realm of occultists where he's having received books. I mean, there's other received books out there. There's plenty, maybe not as nasty as the book of the law, but like a course in miracles and stuff. Those are all received books mm -hmm. from some entities or Urantia or all this other stuff. And you can actually say that about the book of worm that actually supposedly received from angel, but yeah, there's some issues about that as well, which we can get into. But anyway, I think Crowley's intent was really to create, like you said, this, the, the crown of concrete child, the new ale, right? The, which was symbol for his symbol was Horus. And I think that a lot of that stuff where I think even Crowley actually aggregate or actually put together a lot of the stuff that was in Zeitgeist, which Zeitgeist, one of its main themes was the whole similarity between the, the figure of Christ and some of these old ancient gods like Horus, where they resurrected or things like that. But I think that those, I mean, that's a whole other show. I can, I can go back through and look through that, but I think that those are scandalized. I guess actually it's because you should be discounted. And I think the guy who wrote that was a new age or anyway, which overlaps a lot with Crowley's kind of the age of Aquarius and Crowley's crown of cockroach child, which he predicted, predicted would happen in the 1960s. And uh, I think there was a lot of truth to that, that the seeds that he planted kind of blossomed in the sixties under Leary, some of these other characters, but no, Crowley's very Churton and Kaczynski or Kaczynski. These guys are on a different side of the fence than I am about their, their insights and inquiries of Crowley. And they, they would, I think compartmentalize some of the stuff they know about Crowley and keep it from a uh, public audience. Like for me, example, you can go to my website, Willie Ramsey investigates and look at Crowley and sacrifice. 
this article I wrote where the reference that can be discounted by, by people like, oh, what's his name? He, he's my cut. His name is Michael. He's, a, I think, the guy who likes crew. Michael, I can't remember his last name. Oh, come to me. But he says, like, he references this section within Magic and Deering practice and then negates it by saying that it was a symbol of sexual magic. But if you look at my article, Crowley and Sacrifice, you can see that Libra 66 talks about child sacrifice. The, the world's tragedy mentions child sacrifice. So these other documents are, are hinting at this, this practice. That goes back really into prehistory. The Bible mentions it. Romans, one of the critiques about Carthage is their practice of child sacrifice. In the new world, there was child sacrifice. So this practice is, is happens human, human, human existence. It's something that happens in different cultures. Carthage to lend to right? That's what the Romans said to get rid of Carthage. But yeah, so, I mean, some of these people that you talk to, Michael Sarian, I love to of Michael Sarian, T-S-A-R-I-L-L. But I would put M. Kaczynski and Church in a complete different world. So I hope that kind of addresses some. Yeah, no, and I, I think you're you're right on with, with your interpretation because it does seem like there's a sort of idolization of Crowley and sort of uh, the blind spots are obvious when you're able to take a, a deeper look and look at the whole picture and, and interpret it from more than just his own writing because I think a lot of people will take, you know, his own writing and not realize, well, he was kicked out of Italy by Mussolini himself, allegedly. For, no, that's a fact. That's a fact. Right. And participating in a crime there. So, I mean, there's evidence right there. And he was kicked out of France too. So he was kicked out of France in 28 for spying. And then he was monitored. He's probably was a spy right from when he came out of Cambridge. He was probably always working for, I think it was called Secret SIS, Secret Intelligence Service. Now, a really good book called, oh, just, it's uh, The Great Beast 666, Secret Agent 666. Highly recommend that book that goes into proofs that Crowley was spying in the U.S. After 2014 to 1918. Somewhere behind me. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I forgot. Actually, as a matter of fact, Richard Spence is going to be on to fall hat. Oh, good. Yeah, I know. He's excellent. Really interesting guy. And I think what's so interesting about Crowley in particular, and I will say initially when I was drawn to him and his work, I was very naive and just interested in learning about metaphysics and learning about higher consciousness and connecting with a creator essentially is what I would call it now. But in those days, I didn't realize that Crowley had all these dark associations. I just kind of maybe had the same impression that some of those guys you mentioned had, that he was, oh, just a rebellious guy who pushed against the Christian conservative forces. And, and there's a lot of kind of batting uh, around against the Christians that goes on. And, and I think that there's a lot of material there. It's yeah. I mean, that's a Christian. I mean, people, I always get to people, well, I was in the Catholic church, therefore I'm not a Christian. It's like, well, I, I really, it's hard for me to blame you. I mean, I was, I mean, and then they, they complain about the evangelists. There's a lot of problems. I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of critiques of Christianity, either Catholic or Protestant. Yeah. They don't do, I think they're doing some of these Christian organizations do a disservice because they well in in one a great example to that is the pilgrim brethren that 
Crowley's family was a part of. I mean, that was part and parcel to his kind of maybe, I mean, if we're going to look at it from a psychological angle, maybe that's why he had these sort of psychopathic tendencies raised in a very rigid, right. the Plymouth, the Plymouth Brethren was their name. Right. And then it was, there was, he was actually part of a subset called the Exclusive Brethren, right? So they were kind of, and they were influenced by John Nelson Darby. And the theology of Darby can be really critiqued to probably another show, but very rigid. They believed in dispensationalism and uh, the household. He probably went to these exclusive brethren schools in Cambridge. So they were there in England, they're called public schools, but they're really private schools. They'd be called private schools here in the U.S. And he got beat up. He almost died. So his whole experience was uh, very rigid. And then when his father identified who he identified with died when he was 12, that kind of, I think, set him on a path, psychological path that ended up with him in the cult because I think he identified a lot of the shrillness and rigidity of Christianity with his mom and called him the beast. So then he like adapted that. So I think there's a lot of psych, I can make a great point. I think there's a lot of psychological things that happened totally that really made him want to go the other route. Right. Well, and that's no way, in no way, uh, intended to defend him or make a case in defense of him. But I will say he is interesting as a case study because he kind of stands in this uh, threshold or, or intersection between the old way of secret society and the new way of secret society. I mean, like we discussed, he was a part of this, the, the wealthy class of, of England. He was only interested in moving around in those circles and getting to know other aristocrats. And, and I think, you know, secret societies have had their place just from my novice research that these <laughs> secret societies have been fomented by the Royal Society and the Royal bloodlines. And he kind of maybe not having that same Royal inheritance saw his skills fitting into kind of be the Oracle to these people in a way. And then that developed into this sort of CIA, OSS, all these different groups while well, the OSS became the CIA, but either way, MK Ultra. I mean, so many people talk about MK Ultra these days on podcasts and, and it's talked about as if it's a uh, mind control ritual, but Crowley was doing essentially that on certain. Something similar. Yeah. Hypnotism for sure. He definitely knew about hypnotism. But it's definitely one of the other reasons I was fascinated with him because you, you can see how espionage and the esoteric are basically hand in hand. Would you, would you agree? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's an excellent point. I think so. I think a lot of these guys are cultists and hit and Hitler, I mean, Crowley fit right in. So, and you, you can see that too with the Nazis as well. A lot of cultism and espionage as well. But yeah, no, I mean, I think you make a great point. And I think that that, that, that strange transfer to the U S as well. So you see seven members of school when Truman signed the national security act that created the CIA, there's a picture of him with like four or five guys from school and bones behind him watching him sign it. Wow. So, and that was what he claimed was his biggest mistake was like signing the national security at 47. So the act that created the centralized intelligence agent, there's tons of occultists behind there. We did the Bush family and stuff like that. So these are elite, it's kind of like growth. Well, William, I know you're, you're not on the East coast, but growing up in Connecticut, very close to Yale university, one of the things that pushed me to looking into all this stuff was the whole 
Geronimo's skull and bones being taken to Yale University in the tomb. And I, I ran into a gentleman who's from Arizona. We made a connection. He came from Arizona. He's a tribe and his ancestor is Geronimo, a descendant of Geronimo. And he would protest uh, in front of the tomb, not in a picket kind of way, but spiritually he would go out there and, and scream Geronimo as loud as he could, like right in front of the tomb every day at noon. And I happened to run into him in this time when he was doing that. And it really like brought so much clarity to me because at the time I was reading this stuff in books and, and next thing I know, a couple years later, I'm working for a bakery and I happened to deliver at that time pastries to the Yale economics building. And I would sneak in through this sort of back way that the janitor showed me how to get into because the door was always locked. So I would always kind of like the, getting into this building was always strained, right? Well, the day George H.W. Bush dies, I looked down at the newspaper on the front step and it said that they had been, their original home was at 88 Hill House Ave, that exact building that I was walking into, in and out of, in and out of. So for me, there's a lot of little weird synchronicities that have led me to, to see the symbolism that's around New Haven. I mean, that house itself, the Bush family home was odd. It's a very nice house kind of uh, 19th century with a lot of strange ornate features and the town itself, the courthouse right on the green has a depiction of, I would say pedophilia because it's like naked young boys on the lap of like a Roman emperor. And you see these things just that, like you said, in Washington, DC, these are not small meager things. They're spending a lot of money to depict these things on buildings and it really has shown me that there's a esoteric class of people worshiping a secret religion and maybe even using Christianity as like a buffer to kind of make everyone believe like, oh yeah, we're all on the same team. Meanwhile, they don't just go to church on Sunday. They go to the Mason meeting on Monday and the Satanists hang out on Friday. Is that true to your research and what you've seen? hundred percent. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of the Christian religion, at least the politicized Christian religion here. He's really kind of like a tool of the elite. I think that a lot of those guys are, and you can go into some of these characters. I don't want to mention their name, but some of these groups that I did a show for the council for national policy. So, so these are supposedly conservative fingers, but they're fronts for all kinds of well, elite types is one way to put it. But so these are all conservatives, but they're all involved in dominionism, political power, or things like that. And uh, you can just look at the Bushes and the people who put them into power and a lot of the propaganda. Bush was supposedly a Christian. There's like a documentary called Faith, Faith in the White House, but there's never, these guys never talk about, they never even share their testimony or say anything. They're supposedly Methodists. So they're just an example. But I think Christianity has always been used as a, in a Machiavellian sense by elites to keep control, well, even whether it's Protestantism, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, uh, Orthodox Church. So I think that it's always been a tool of the state, maybe not in communism, but in Western countries, I would say so for sure. So, I mean, I mean, you can, yeah, it's just, that's, that's, I don't trust the political elite in this, I mean, the Christian political elite, oh, I, don't, I don't trust them to do the right thing. 
Yeah. Is this part of what motivates you to do your research and, and look into these things? I think so. I mean, if you look at like my pod, if you look at my podcast and the stuff I put on there, it's, I would say that I became an investigative journalist because or a component of kind of my career or work is because the investigative journalists don't investigate, they don't do anything. So I'm willing to ask those questions kind of objectively. And I, I kind of give, I mean, I definitely was a Republican until Bush, but I gave up my party definition. I'm an ended registered independent now. And I don't even think I'm liberal conservative terms. I'm not a liberal or conservative. I wouldn't call that. So, and I'm, so I tried to look at things objectively, get the facts, look deeper. What's the agendas? And I think that goes into all those groups. And a lot of that, those things, a lot of the trust and maybe cultural potency of these cults or groups who don't even call themselves cults, it's diminished once you really look at the founding characters and some of their doctrines. If you look at the totality of their doctrines, people were not getting involved in them. And so in a lot of, in some ways, I'm just kind of exposing them and shining a light and letting, trying to lend other people gauge the value or efficacy of, of them. So I'm not afraid to uh, criticize the cap, uh, the Christian, any Christian church, really. The line of them are observed to be criticized. I would agree with that. And that's somebody speaking for myself. I, I was raised Catholic. My family always encouraged me to go to church for the grandparents. Go to church. Your mamma and papa will be upset if you don't. And over time, I just felt like something wasn't right. And, and after leaving that segment of the small town, I felt a closer relationship with the creator just through my own seeking and, and using my own intuition to discern right from wrong. And I think whatever this force is, it does call to us to sort of sort through the dark and the light and, and make a beneficial impact on other people. I think a lot of religions kind of talk about that, but as soon as it gets politicized, then it becomes weaponized. And I'm wondering, we talked a little bit about Crowley and his influence. What are at, with your book, the shadow of Crowley, I'm sure is not getting the title correctly, please correct me on but that. Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. So it's right. kind of like his influence over all kinds of people. Different and, and similarly, when I looked into this stuff, I found that, yeah, the list was huge from Ian Fleming to Jack Parsons to Kenneth Anger and all these other people in between, even uh, the founder of Scientology and Hubbard and all these different characters not only were influenced by him, but in a lot of cases had a direct relationship with him. And I think that just goes to show how pervasive this type of thinking is, whether it's through the elite or whether it's through the cliche kind of like gothic, depressed group of people who are just dressing in black. I, I really don't think that's the problem. I don't think outlier culture is the problem here. I think it's the 1% who have used figures like Crowley to inspire offshoot cults that then muddy the water so that we never really know exactly which group it is. Cause I mean, with your research, I'm sure the list of, of different cults and groups is huge. All, all these different actors that are involved in, in a lot of similar things. Look at, I mean, even all the way to Nexia, right up kind of in New York, kind of in your kind of Eastern area, apparently influenced by Hubbard and Curley. Wow. So yeah. So, I mean, you can go right now, look up Nexium on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not uh, a good source. Yeah, it's not a good source at all, really, anymore. There has to be a better one. 
because all these guys are re-editing all this stuff dishonestly. In my opinion, even the founder of Wikipedia said, I don't rely on my old creation. He came out and said, but at least as Nexiums, you can see there's a graph that shows all the influences upon what aggregated into Nexium. And one of them is Crowley Hepper. Now, when you look at a group like Nexium, I mean, obviously that guy in jail serving a life sentence many, many years. You Keith Raniere, yeah. Right, Keith Raniere. He would be someone in you know, my novice opinion, seems like a scapegoat, right? Because they kind of just let him take the fall there. And it seems like the Brofman family was not exposed for their actual role in it. I mean, maybe this is just a, my take. I haven't done as much research as you have, I'm sure. But yeah, it just seems like these guys who do take the rap, whether it's Epstein or Ranieri, they, they don't seem to be nominal players. They're very minimal players in the overall scheme. And that's why they end up getting the spotlight, even if it's for their demise. It's a great point. I mean, Epstein was not the sophisticated one. He was really kind of a front guy. I mean, you can look up the mega group. Maxwell's background's very fascinating for dad. His real name is Abraham Laszlo. And then if Ranieri had a Hebrew's real potency and financial backing came from the Brockman children. So right. I think he knew where the, uh, the golden goose or golden geese in that regard were. And I think you're right that they can just put everything on, on, on Ranieri and Epstein and get out of it. But it is interesting how those, those cults do operate and how I mean, they were really vicious. I mean, they went after people, Ranieri, definitely for sure. I mean, Epstein, you don't know how, what kind of stuff went on. Epstein was running around for like 25 years, right? So you don't know what's going on. There's suspicious deaths around Nexium. There was a couple of people who died. I talked to Keith, uh, Frank Parlato, who knew Epstein, and also Rick Ross, who's kind of a cult expert, was sued by Ranieri and literally was in depositions with him. Before he would go. I listened to that interview. It was a great interview. People should go check that out. William Ramsey investigates. But yeah, it, it definitely, it like I'm making the point here, it's, it's murkier and murkier the more you look, it seems like. And writing the book on the smiley face killers, I wonder if you think that like a lot of people who look into this case, do you think it was a group of people who were participating in these killings? And if so, do you, have you been able to put your finger on maybe which one seems most likely behind it? Well, I mean, I think that my, that research started very slow. I thought initially that the SFKers, Family Face Killers phenomenon was an urban legend. So I put it in the context of like Sasquatch or fairies or something like that. So I didn't really look into it. I had seen it. I had heard of something on America coast to coast. There was a woman, one of the early researchers. So I, I, I had a brief thing. Really what happened is I kind of kept seeing the smiley face symbol around in the modern culture. And I'm like, is there a connection? And then I kept seeing it in the occult and, uh, very obvious places like Allen Wars, the Watchmill. And so you're just kind of seeing this, is there any meaning to this? So then I, uh, reach out, was online, kind of came into some of the researchers that kept sending stuff to the original researchers who were Gilbertson and Gannon, who wrote probably the most important book on it, case studies of forensic drownings. They never responded, but I did link up with a guy by the name Jim Smith, who really had a broad angle view at Saul on this case. So I looked up with what I said, 
what do you think's going on? His, his, his title on his Twitter page is Smiley Fix Cult. So we believe that he's obviously kind of attributing it to kind of cult behavior. Anyway, so then I started watching and came across a couple of cases that really, I mean, I watched these people, I knew they disappeared and then they were found in water later. One was Joey Labute, who was uh, disappeared in Columbus, Ohio. And then another one, Dakota James, who disappeared in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Sadly, Joey Labute was found in water in the Scioto River, like 10 days after he disappeared out of the bar. And then Dakota James was found 40 days later in the Ohio River downstream from where he was last seen. And uh, there's a really fascinating article by Nicole Weisensee Egan on Daily Beast about the case of Dakota James. I highly recommend people look that up because it just gets really dark and very creepy that he was might maybe targeted. So those were really the cases where I saw them happen. And then that was kind of like, okay, this is really, this isn't a phenomenon. This is like a real. So then I started categorizing. There's books out there by other people who've researched it. There's websites, one's called Footsteps at the River's Edge. I was all working for Ed Opperman as a producer. So I got in to talk to a couple parents of some of these people who were deceased. And it's clearly, it's clearly something's happening. Somebody's targeting young men for whatever reason. And there's tons of cases. There's probably two to 300 cases. And I put them together in 2017 into my first documentary on the subject, which is the Spawning Feast Killers, who's abducting, torturing, murdering college-aged men in the US and UK. And it goes through so many cases. I think I have 80 or 90 cases in the first time. It's way too long. It's like three and a half hours. But I really just tried to want to prove to people that there's a, there's definitely a phenomenon. Nobody just gone through and watched that documentary. It's gone. Yeah, this is just coincidence. And then I followed it up with, uh, Smiley Face Killers, the global slide continues. That was a follow-up last year. Those are both on Vimeo, but uh, as far as people dig. It's hard to really say my first inclination was because there was a preponderance of the deaths of young men were homosexual. I thought that that was really a uh, very important element in a lot of the cases, but not all were. There was a lot of Christians, actually, a lot of the guys had Christian faith. So it was very, it's very hard for me to like, just as a a lone guy on the internet who's researching to really kind of look into these cases, who's doing it, but somebody's definitely going out at night for whatever reason. Some of these guys are like athletic or good looking guys. So maybe that's the reason for the targeting, but some don't fit into that profile, mm. but there's tons of cases. There's a lot of Austin and uh, New York city are definitely hot spots. So there's definitely lots of cases. And there was actually that I interviewed some of the people, like there was a girl on her her website, it was Cryptid Antiquarian, and she posted just a blog called Mysterious Drownings or something like that. And uh, I'm trying to remember her name, but that was the most bandied about, like she, she was writing about cryptids or like, like cryptozoology. She wrote this and that sent her stats like off the charts because everybody started saying, yeah, there's some kind of weird thing going on here. And I think she had like 2000 comments and I was like watching them through the day. People were adding cases. So there's definitely a phenomenon. It's really a question of why people disagree. My kind of conclusion after researching it is they're being abducted out for a period of time for 
for very dark reasons. And then the water death is, or the water event is a way to make it look suspicious. So yeah. you really want, if you have young kids or if you're young in a bar, you can easily be drugged. And most women are very sensitive to that, like being drugged in a bar, riffied, but men aren't. And so you can get targeted and uh, you got to really be careful. Yeah. Now I wonder in an unrelated, very unrelated way, rivers have come up as a, a source of intrigue because it, there seems to be certain rivers that are symbolic and used for their symbolic uh, nature and maybe even the energy associated with that. So I wonder if there's an occult angle and maybe even if you haven't looked into it, but if this could be a part of your future research, but going back and seeing if there are, you know, there's a precedent for this in occult rituals that involve drownings, because I definitely think that rivers are significant and maybe even those rivers individually themselves, as you look at them and examine the rivers, there might be a, a, a symbolic nature to why those people are, are going in those particular rivers. I mean, just what, what might seemingly be unrelated could you know, reveal some more truth. I don't know. This comes to mind because someone who I'm about to actually start a new podcast with is Michael Wan and, and the majority of his work is involving the Susquehanna river and how the Washington DC whole plot was built on the Chesapeake Bay, particularly because of the Susquehanna river. And that's, you know, just another name for the Chesapeake Bay. It's the same body of water and so many other little synchronicities and weird things that have gone on, uh, with the Susquehanna, but again, seemingly unrelated, there have been people that have, uh, you know, drowned in the Susquehanna. It's a big river. So, right. Uh, well, there was an, I had a couple cases in, in DC that I covered of mysterious deaths, but. There, I mean, like you look through my book, Global Death Cult, some of these ideas of like drowning, ritual drowning are there. I also, some people have talked to me about this, the ideal kind of gay lover among, at least in some gay circles was this boy called Antonus, who was the lover, Hadrian's lover, Emperor Hadrian's lover, who drowned in the Nile and so like. There's all, there's some mm. definite water death type occult symbolism in certain groups out there, no doubt. And you, you talked about Kenneth Anger. If you watch Lucifer Rising, you can watch the end of it before the, the, the UFOs show up. And it actually features a guy in there who sat on Crowley's knee, who literally had a personal relationship to Crowley. His dad wrote one of Crowley's biographies, which I read. But before the aliens show up, and Inger takes these kind of, they're really kind of statuettes of human beings and throws them in water, kind of like ritually drowns them and also UFOs show up. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can watch the end of New Surprise. Considering what's going on in the past few years with uh, all the UFO activity stirring up and allegedly they're going to disclose the UFO truth in June. And I, I just, yeah, I wonder if, well, I've made the, the there. I think the eventual UFO disclosure, it's going to, it's going to be the occult disclosure that all of these UFOs mm. are demons. Right. Right. And that's, so that know, people, so people when it, it's right out of Arthur C. Clarke, it'll be something like yeah, yeah. I've had guests on the show, uh, notably Isaac Weisop, who have, has that same point of view that these are not outer space beings, they're interdimensional. I 
tend to agree with that. I think if you look at cultures around the world, you see that they have all sorts of stories of these beings and they're not always great. The interactions are usually like taken with a great deal of respect and the further back you go in time and the indigenous cultures, they seem to avoid those places where there's these benevolent or, or sorry, malevolent beings. And yeah, I think there's a whole layer of reality that we're not able to understand. And maybe that's because of this group that uses certain types of Christianity and other religions to promote a paradigm that doesn't allow for us to even conceive of these things, or at least just to think they're silly when people bring them up. Hence the name of this show. I think when you realize that there is so many powerful people seemingly interested in the occult, it makes you wonder like, why, why is this stuff <clears throat> so important to them? And how can this stuff be used? for the benefit of all rather than just their benefit. Cause it seems like that is the nature of evil in itself to be selfish and take from other people and negate other people's free will and, and even further to harm other people, but maybe to uh, go into it, unless you have something to comment on that. Well, I mean, I think it's important. It's like, what's the purpose? Why are people into the occult? Why is this information occulted? You know, I think that's right. It's really about selfishness, aggregation of power, authority, control. Right. And, and you can see that through the cults, through these religious systems that are misused and abused. And it goes back to Crowley's dictum, the slave shall serve, which comes on the book of the law. Right. So, so you can see that is why it ties into the elite, why it's aristocratic in its ways and not egalitarian. So they're not sharing the ideas. They're keeping it, they're keeping it initiated or actually. So the people who have the access to these ideas have to be initiated in to understand it. Right. And then you're just looking at the whole pyramidal, pyramidal structure of the world, the, the kind of neo, neo feudalism that we're in now, in part. And th so I think that, yeah, I mean, it goes into the nature of evil. You can have, st I mean, standard behavior, standard box people kind of operate in and live their lives. And then people break the rules, really big break the rules, like Kendra Crowley, go outside of the box of their way with behavior to get power really kind of almost in the narcissistic apotheosis of themselves, uh, dominate other people, terrify them, traumatize. Yeah. And the other connection I wanted to make and point out, and thanks for reminding me of Crowley, because he drew this drawing and had this contact with this Lam being, which people have commented that it looks just like a gray alien as we see them today. And going back to the times when kings said they had the divine right to rule, I mean, there's always been this sort of otherworldly connection with groups of power. I wonder you're always look. Yeah, you're looking into these cults. What are the like current UFO cults like? Because I know there's certainly UFO cults out there. And where is the line blurred between the two? They are. I mean, look at how many of these cults have kind of a space opera thing. I guess Ranieri had it. Hubbard definitely has it. The Mormons have it. There's all kinds. I mean, so uh, there was one called the Solar Temple, where a lot of these guys committed suicide. In Francophile, they're Frank, kind of in Quebec and in France that were influenced by Crowley as well. And the whole Lamb thing is really remarkable because that was drawn in 1918 or 17 in New York after his Alamantra working, which he carried out for 10 or 11 days in one Washington square. So right there in the middle of Manhattan. And the result of that was a picture of Lamb, which is, is kind of a titular picture. It's not like a, somebody's day one, Bob or Andrew, 
Lama refers to like Lama, like the uh, Tibetan Lama idea. So you see that contact. And if you go back entities and spirits, you can look at like the Aztec Empire, Egypt, who Moses contested with, right? They had these two priests, Yanis and Yambres, who were basically court magicians. So you almost can see this whole biblical contest between Moses and God as Moses as a representation of God in the same tradition of the Old New Testament. And then this kind of paganistic Egyptian civilization with its overarching potentate, right? The Pharaoh and his little corpse magicians. So you are summoning something or something's going on with them. And how many of these old, and if you look at almost all pre-enlightenment civilizations, total belief in the, like alternate planes of existence, existence, good and evil spirits, sorcerers, oracles, things like that, all existed all through time, all really open. It's still around today, actually, in our, in our world, not in a really well-known public culture. So these entities and beings, maybe they just have been around people are talking to over the gods and a lot of Christian writers kind of have that theme right now about the contests, kind of a uh, biblical worldview against these other cultures that had different gods or game of gods, ones of books or the battle against the gods. So different Christian authors are saying that these other cultures had these different entities that were not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus, Jacob. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are as a little modern Christian who obviously, like you kind of alluded to, you don't tend to follow. There's a lot of sex. So there's a lot of different groups and offshoots. I listened to your conversation with Ken Ami on the Baha'i, and I thought that was really interesting. The whole, how they interpret the prophets, the prophet to come every so often. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, he's going to be there in 10 years. He's going to be here 10 more years. And it just, it just seems like as time goes on, people are really rewriting things for their own aims. But what are your thoughts on like uh, these other religions that other Christians are interpreting that way? You have to, I mean, they're very, very common perils history of Christianity and one is having a firm prediction of the return of Christ because almost everybody who's predicted it has gotten it wrong. So when you hear that from kind of a Christian church, whether it's the Seventh-day Adventist or something else, you really, well, I've got to be careful. So as far as all of these sects, a lot of them got a real way from the original text and it became kind of a church, almost like they worshiped the, the church of stone and mortar instead of Christ in, in the Bible. So there's a differentiation. And a lot of these churches, the big box churches, a lot of them were just gotten away from, I think the original kind of uh, stripped down biblical Christianity, which I think is the most important thing. And I, so I, I don't, I'm very, I think the really, like I had uh, Visigoth always show and he said, just get a Geneva Bible and read it. That's really the most important thing I would say for people to do is not try to have somebody else tell you what's in this book, mm-hmm. but do it for yourself. And I think that actually takes a lot of this churchianity that's grown up. There's individuals within Christian church who really want to set themselves apart or make a name for themselves. So they create a new doctrine that become its head. And so that's very, that's another peril. 
addition to like predicting the return of Christ. So you got to really be careful. I mean, I think that, like I said earlier, conversation, you can't really blame people for critiquing what they think is true Christianity. If it's evangelism or the rapture's coming, which is garbage theology. And a lot of people, I mean, it's, it's a lot of, t- I mean, it goes back actually to right after, right at the very inception of the religion where these problems have been in the church from the beginning where people are getting their ears tickled by teachers who are really in it for the money or have other aims where there's heretics, where there's infiltrators. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, like, like I said, it's very important for people to read for themselves so they know what's in it, not what somebody else is telling whatever church or sect is saying what's in this Bible. Right. Right. And on the point about the rapture or the apocalypse, it seems like that's a big feature with a lot of these cults is, and, and maybe even a tool to manipulate people Definitely. to change their lives in a Definitely really radical a way. Definitely a tool to manipulate. Where do they, sorry, but within no. Christianity and without, mm. because they do, right. if you talk to like these guys from the Jehovah's Witnesses, the end is near, baby. You've got to really work hard because right. there's only going to be 144,000 people who are going to be saved. I mean, look at that standard. It's very abusive. And the same thing with original sin within Catholic Catholicism. Right. God, original sin. It's not in the Bible. They, right. They've manipulated kind of the terms, but you got this original sin. It's really dark, mm-hmm. very burdensome. So they lay these heavy burdens. Exactly what Christ said when he was railing against a lot of these old teachers from Sanhedrin or Judaism at that time. It's like you're laying these heavy burdens on other people where you walk away free. Right. And so a lot, a lot of, I mean, what's really remarkable when you read the Bible yourself, you'll see how few teachers and how few churches actually reference a lot of what Christ railed against when he was in Jerusalem before his death 2000 years ago, because a lot of those critiques that he had, where he's screaming at these people who were turning chairs, saying it's come and done thieves. A lot of that stuff could and may apply to some of these teachers today, because a lot of these people are prosperity. Look at how rich some of these people are. They're off the church, off the charts, rich. And so, I mean, I did a, three shows uh, with Mike Bennett about two gospels and two masters. Because there is a differentiation within the evangelical church. And you say that to some of these evangelicals, they will go apoplectic. They will try to figuratively strangle you, but maybe literally. If you say, yeah, you guys are just uh, looking for worldly dominionism. Where's the, where's the spirit? Instead, you're always wanting to get people's money. Some of these people are high-level leaders of uh, what other people consider Christendom. And then you've got the critics of it who are accurately critiquing it, in my opinion, and that, that degrades from all the other stuff that's much more important. Right. And I think, unfortunately, that turns a lot of people off from even taking up faith in God and, and maybe examining, like you said, an actual Bible. Like, cause I was going to ask you, I've seen the King James Bible, right? That seems to be the one. If you type the word Bible in on Google, let's say, they're going to suggest that one. That seems to have like gained prominence for some reason. But as it pertains to the apocalypse, is that an original? Is Was that originally included? Or like, what are you, what are, where well, that's that a question because Martin Luther took the apocalypse out of his Bible. Mm. So his German Bible doesn't have the apocalypse. The Ethiopian Bible has the Apocalypse and the Book of Enoch, 
So it's really, there's been a, a constant issue about what is, should be the general text of which remain apocryphal. The apocryphal books are really interesting, but the book of Peter is very interesting. Talks about his time contesting against Simon Magus, who's briefly mentioned in the standard Bible, but, uh, Simon Magus and a lot of these guys like Burley's and Magus too. So you can kind of see that still happening world history. The King James is disputed. There's some people who say that important texts and important phrases have been left out. Some people will recommend the Geneva Bible and there's so many variations of the Bible NIV. I don't like the new modern. I like the language of the King James Bible in the way that it had within the English speaking world has homogenized people's understanding of the text. I think there might be some problems. I would not say that I'm the go-to guy for critiquing the variants of the Bibles that have come out of what's Sinatica and all these other ones and which is the best translation. But I do like the King James Bible. I think it's good. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. I just like to get your opinion on that. Uh, and I have been always fascinated with the Ethiopian Bible because allegedly the Ark of the Covenant is there. Uh, well, they say it's there. They, they, they will, the Ethiopians will tell you. Right. Right. And someone who we spoke about on the phone, I think I brought him to your attention. His name is Ross Ben. He talks about how there are stories of, I think, Abu Bakar, the third uh, king in Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan, that region of Africa, but not what we would know as a modern country. This is a long time ago, took ships out and sailed across to South America. And I find that fascinating. Ross, this is all his work, but the fact that the Aztecs came out of nowhere and they were participating in what seems to be sacrificial rituals, it seems no, like doubt. that ritual came from the Mediterranean area down through Africa and then potentially across the ocean, you know, along this current that goes directly from Africa into the Caribbean. Have you looked at I think that? it's a real, I think it's a real Western presumption that Columbus was the first person to find this other, other place. I mean, right. I think it's ridiculous. I think there's probably, you know, contact. They've taken mummies from Egypt and found residues or compounds of cocaine, which mm -hmm. doesn't grow anywhere but South America. Right. So there's clearly some kind of contact going on. Chinese have allegedly found the new world. And there's clearly is evidence that the Vikings made it to Greenland, that there've been settlements. So, I mean, they found strange kind of parts of history where they found Hebrew writing. Like, they can't explain it in like New Mexico and things like that. Connecticut so, too, actually. Yeah. So, and you can see all those cats as well. Yeah. So there's been strange developments. Clearly civilizations have risen and fallen in the new, fallen in the new world. Even the Aztecs, if you go to look at the old, like it's basically Mexico city, but the Aztecs had a whole development. But over there was Teotihuacan. They had no idea where that came from. They had this thing called the, the Valley of the Sun or whatever. They had huge pyramids, and they said, "We don't even know who built this. We just have myths about it." So um, clearly, and if you look at the Ainu people who populated Japan, Alaska, the West Coast, clearly there's something going on that might not have just made it through history, written history to the present. We know that at the Alexandrian library got far too crisp in a fight between Christians in the sixth century. So tons of information lost, but the possibility of, of cross-pollination between these civilizations, I think is, is really the rule, not some, some, I don't. Mm, 
Absolutely. Yeah. And it's all fascinating stuff. Another thing that Ross talks about is this necro geomancy where they actually go and demagnetize sacred sites and rebuild a statue to a Roman God there or whatever culture is particularly, but it seems to me like it's like a Roman influence. We have New York, we have New England, the British empire is kind of an, a vestige of the Holy Roman empire. What are your thoughts on the empire today and, and how that's shaped our, where we are at now? Well, we're headed towards a global empire. I think that that's really kind of, I think America's really kind of grown functions like a road. Right. So now with the advent of travel and communication at light speed, we're really at the, at the really the beginning point of a different type of civilization that really, we can't, we're in it. So it doesn't seem like there's many people looking at it objectively. So that, that new civilization, it'll be totally different because you can just see people migrating right now is a huge issue in the world that didn't really exist as much more. I mean, there was migrations from Spain to the, to Mexico, England to the colonies and things like that. But now it's just people are bouncing around all over the place. So you're going to see this completely different global culture and, and the inevitable, inevitable kind of erosion of the nation state and national boundaries, where you really almost have a, a kind of global elite now that just bounces around between different countries. They want to uh, offshore their money and avoid taxes. So. I would say you want to really be avoiding kind of this kind of neo, neo feudalism that I think, I think it certainly in China, I would say that, that something like that exists, but yeah, we're headed for kind of a different, completely different world than, than even I was born in 50 years ago. Mm. Yeah. Well, what are your plans for the future? What's next for you? Any books? Well, I've just, what? just been working a lot on my podcast. Just try, I mean, my kind of like gist or crux of what I'm trying to do is really just try to give people base points of books and things like that, where they can kind of get an idea of what's happening in the world mm. without kind of a corporate influence. So I've definitely, people can go check out William Ramsey investigates on iTunes. And then my books are trying to expose kind of like the different elements of culture in the world that a lot of people aren't exposed to in public school education. So you can definitely hear about kind of symbolism and ideas, but I think it's very important to see for people to understand that because they'll give you an insight into kind of a world that prep school kids who went to the best schools live, the rest of us don't. Right. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I think that's something that's maybe jaded me for worse or for better being just a middle-class blue collar kid living so close to Yale, going there, you do, you feel it in the air. There's a sort of pretentiousness and, and I worked at the farmer's market in town. I worked as a delivery guy in town. So I've seen it in and out and, and I really really want to thank you for your work because I think it's extremely important for people to understand that and know that these Ivy League schools and, and a lot of institutions harbor a lot of skeletons in their closet. And, and yeah, thank you again, William. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. And I, you know, look forward to working with you in the future. Yeah. Likewise. Well, that's great to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. 
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Show us some love on Patreon, patreon.com slash MFTIC and get all the exclusive content you can see in the scene. And thanks again for tuning in. Have a great moment wherever you are in the now.